welcome to the Motorsport Coaching Podcast, sponsored by Motivate Training and Management. This is a podcast where we talk to drivers and industry experts to help you maximize your performances on and off the track. Let's get started with today's show. Hello again, Matt Payne here on the Motorsport Coaching Podcast, powered by Motivate Training. Matt Nolte is one of the most recognised voices in Australian motorsport. The commentator on television and at the circuit for just about everything with an engine in it, Matt's got a great story of perseverance and hard work that has got him right through from very humble beginnings to where he's at on the Fox Sports and Seven Networks motorsport coverages. In this episode, Matt speaks about his journey to get to where he's got, to getting into America and some of the fun that we've had along the way. We touch on things like Scotty McLaughlin and the success that he's having in the United States, Matt having called many of his great supercars moments, and also work ethic and the importance of putting in the hard work. I gather you are going to really enjoy this catch-up with one of the voices of Australian motorsport, Matt Nolte, only on the Motorsport Coaching Podcast, powered by Motivate Training. It was a real hit with the Texas fans in 2017, and it's back bigger and better for 2018. Along with Sean Sermony, I'm Matt Nolte, and welcome to the Great American Speedway that is Texas Motor Speedway for races 11 and 12 of the Speed Energy Stadium Super Trucks on CBS Sports. And welcome back to the Motorsport Coaching Podcast, powered by Motivate Training. Gives me great pleasure to welcome a very good friend of mine, Matt Nolte, here with us this week. How are you, Matty? I'm good, Matty. Good to actually see your face for the first time in a long time too, mate. <laughs> it's been a while. God, this could go anywhere. Um, uh, really, good, <laughs> really good to have you on board. Um, for those who don't know Matt, he is the voice of many motorsports, not just around Australia, but certainly in other parts of the world and certainly one of the most, um, I guess, versatile commentators around the place from everything from Speedway to uh, supercars, stadium super trucks, and everything else in between. And this podcast, uh, as uh, listeners of the podcast know, is not just about motorsport. It's about the story behind people in motorsport and their inspirational journeys. And certainly, uh, uh, you've definitely got one of them. You've been around for a fair while now, Matty. Yeah, I, I met you, I think, the year 2000. Um, gee, it feels like yesterday. Um, and pretty much that first couple of years, um, I got the opportunity to chase the dream. It was always like a, a private dream, I guess, that I wanted to be in the industry. But, you know, it's such a, a tough industry. And by that point, I was already just a forklift driver. And I thought, man, do I need to go back and do all the schooling or, or whatever? And then a few opportunities popped up. And um, I'm very thankful that, you know, I chased that because you sometimes need that little push over the cliff. I know you gave me a lot of pep talks early in the days about chasing Instead of sitting around, I could have been doing something very much different now. But um, incredible journey. Never thought it would get to where it is now. Um, and I'm really, really blessed that I've done a lot of cool stuff. And it's only, you know, still a long time to go, I guess. Yeah, indeed. I guess your background, uh, if we go to your background, you grew up in Adelaide. So you're another kid out of the Grand Prix area in Adelaide to come through into motorsport. There's so many people um, that Formula One on the streets of Adelaide had inspired to get involved in the sport. Well, I was always a, a cricket and footy kid when I grew up, and it wasn't till I went to <clears throat> the Grand Prix here, excuse me, back in 1987. Uh, Dad drove for Toll, which were the Carters for Foster's Beer, which 
sort of went hand in hand and we got a call up to go to the Grand Prix on the Friday afternoon. We're on our way to actually watch the Sprint Car Masters at Speedway Park back in the day. And all of a sudden we were, we were literally backing out the driveway and mum came out and said, you've got a phone call from work. And dad looked at me and he goes, I think we're going to the Grand Prix track. And from that moment, it was just motorsport flat out. He, he took me to the Speedway when I was, I think, five or six. And apparently, and he told this story a while ago, one of the cars backfired going into the corner, frightened the daylights out of me, and I wouldn't go back. <laughs> and anyway, this all changed. I mean, it still gives me a bit of a fright this, to this day still. But it's, I was going to say, it still um, does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah that fireworks at the race fence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you and I both have had those, those experiences over the journey. Um, and from that moment, I saw, a, you know, I saw a Formula One car in the flesh and it was like, that's it. It was for that day, it was going to be motorsport onwards. And I think only recently we had a discussion with a great mate of ours, Benny Bishop. And, you know, he said, you're very lucky to come from a motorsport rich state. A um, lot of, you know, a lot of um, states around Australia didn't have the motorsport that we did, you know, like West Australia had Rally Australia going on the fame Claremont Speedway, but we had the Grand Prix, we had the Speedway, we had the touring cars and all that go on. So you've seen some really great people benefit from that over the years. And um, when the Adelaide 500 was born in 99, that was obviously the next dream that I wanted to be if I couldn't do the Grand Prix was to, to call it that track. And, you know, you and I stood there on the back straight for many, many years, yes. probably with a few too many beers, but yes. we used to talk about the day that would happen. And I'm very, very fortunate to have gotten to that position to, to A call and B, do it so often like I did. So there's a lot to be said and a lot of uh, thanks should go to the people that made the Grand Prix possible both in Adelaide and in Melbourne these days. Yeah, indeed. And I, I mean, my first Grand Prix was 96 in Melbourne. Um, and from that moment, you know, obviously old school style Formula One with real engines. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, agreed. <laughs> but, you know, the noise, the noise when we got out of the cab in the centre of Melbourne um, and we were sort of 10 or 15 kilometres from the track and this was the first ever one there. So they had Thursday practice uh, for the drivers to learn the track. And the fact that we were so far away, knew that we were a fair distance away but could hear this noise um, and to be there, um, of course, that was, I was a massive Jacques Villeneuve fan and that was the time that he qualified on pole um, and so many experiences at Melbourne um, over the time since. And um, to fast forward, I guess, to Adelaide and sort of some modern times, um, as we record this, uh, it's the start of the month month of May or the month of May is well and truly in full swing. Um, and I it's a good the, time to be alive, isn't it? <laughs> see the smile on your face. Last year, <laughs> it's a good time to be actually an Antipodean, an Australian or New Zealand motorsport fan. The last two days at Indianapolis have been enormous. Like you've just had um, Will Power come out and blast them on day one. Day two, Scotty Dixon blasts them. Uh, but the guy that I guess you're taking a very keen interest in is Scott McLaughlin and his movement over there, given your supercars background, I mean, you called some of the biggest uh, moments, um, not just in his racing career, but his life, you know, Newcastle um, with the incident that lost him the championship, uh, the times where he's gone on to win two of the three championships, Bathurst victories and so on. What do you make of what he's done since leaving Australia and going over there? I'm not surprised. Um, people are laughing at him when he say that because if you really study his career, I mean, he was destined for bigger things and what he did in supercars was phenomenal. But to see him come out straight away in 
the IndyCar series and that 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 second place at Texas the other week that was incredible and I've been, we've both been there for races it's one of the fastest tracks in the world it's it's actually quite scary to I don't think I've ever been so scared at a racetrack <laughs> watching cars go around because they're so close on the edge all the time but to yeah. see him running with so many experienced um, IndyCar stars and remember he's in a, a bunch of guys this year that are rookies. Roman Grosjean, rookie. Hard to think he's a rookie. Jimmy Johnson, yeah. you know, NASCAR legend. He's amongst all those guys, and he's actually beating them. So it's really, really awesome to see. It's probably going to be the toughest era of Indy cars that we've had probably in the last two decades. So from a ticker box and get a podium already and come out to the Speedway like he's done this week so far. It's, I'm, I'm very, very jealous that we can't be there, but yeah. it's going to be awesome to watch in a couple of weeks' time. No, exactly. I mean, you know, P3 and your first ever official uh, practice session at the Indianapolis 500 is um, is just unbelievable. And, um, yeah, as you say, to echo what you say, like he's just come out of the blocks in, uh, in such strong fashion, you know, um, and he's mentally tough. That's the thing about Scott is that he's hugely mentally tough. And I think it was that incident in Newcastle back in 17 wasn't it i think that's what changed him that was the you know the one he lost to then win three that was one of the most incredible days in motorsport i think in australia i mean it was always going to be hard to top that bathurst in 2014 where you know we raced almost into darkness on the sunday night but to almost eclipse that in 2017 at a brand new track where it right down to the last you know 650 odd meters of racing was very character building. I think a lot of us stood there stunned afterwards going, did that actually just happen? And, mm. and that's what championships are all about. Yeah, indeed. And then, you know, getting back to what's going on in IndyCar with Scotty, I mean, if you look at the, the championship point standings, on one side of him, he's got Will Power, and then one position behind him is Simon Pagina. Um, so he's yeah. sort of like, you know, it's, it's quite phenomenal that he, he's in there giving it to these guys that are the absolute stars of the sport. And, um, you know, I think that once they trim him out, heading into qualifying on, um, well, Sunday and Monday, our time here in Australia, um, we're really going to see him come forward. And certainly I saw um, the elevation in the miles per hour, went up two miles an hour in a day. So they're starting the, they're starting the trim out process uh, with him. And I think we'll see more speed from him tonight oh and just to see him in the the yellow submarine oh please um do i bring up the yellow towels because i've actually got yes, one so here getting from... to that point <laughs> <laughs> well when we were over there in um 2016 um i remember i can't remember where i was sent on the golf cart but i was sent somewhere on the golf cart to do something and um maybe it was to pick you guys up because you were with Shebeki and um crazy yeah and in the process it was pouring with rain so an endless practice day because when you go to indianapolis you have about a week's worth of practice and all you're doing yeah. is sitting on the pit wall waiting for it to happen and you think it's getting a little bit boring then it rains and then it's really boring um yeah. so, but i run into but i run into scotty mclaughlin and lee holdsworth so you guys got bumped and they got taken back to the truck on the the golf cart then i came back by that time it was teaming down but thanks to pennzoil uh for supplying uh these <laughs> towels at the uh at the uh the hall of fame and the museum i don't know whether they were officially supplied or not but certainly they were uh to you guys and isn't it remarkable that uh five years down the track scott's driving the yellow submarine and after we all sat in the truck that afternoon there's a picture on my wall to the right of me here that one of i think one of the guys from the pertec team murray guys took it was all in the transporter during yeah. that rain out and actually i'm still wet in the picture on the left hand side and there's <laughs> You 
um, Richard Crail, Crusher, Lee Holdsworth, Paul Ryan, Philip Agana, and it's just one of those great pitches of a really, really special weekend. And you knew when we got them, and you were there the entire months in 2016. I've done two trips in that period for the Stadium Super Truck commentary, but the rollback in on the Wednesday for the you know here in IndyCar, the first time going around that speedway on on Carb Day was something I'll never forget. And you know we're both a couple of guys from Australia that have just watched this stuff for years and years. To actually, go there not once but a handful of times now. It is such it is such an awesome event. I and mean, everyone goes to me, why don't you go to Europe? Why don't you go and check other motorsport out? Maybe one day that will happen. But at the moment, I just love that event, and I love being in Indianapolis that time of the year. Oh, it's fantastic. I was listening to um, the radio program over there this morning that was wrapping up the day. And, you know, I've got goosebumps now and even um, listening to Stefan Wilson uh, being interviewed early this morning, Australian time. They were talking to him about being back at the Speedway. He, of course, debuted in 2016 as well. Um, he said, oh, man, I've just got goosebumps talking to you about this place. It's just, um, yeah, it's awe-inspiring. It really is. And um, to get on to, get get back, I guess, to the, the purpose of, of our conversation um you know you coming through from all of the ranks right through to where you got to with the stadium super trucks you actually started your motorsport journey actually started in pit lane yeah it was it was interesting um 2013 i completely walked out of my career i actually jumped back onto a forklift and i was like well that's the end i've, I've done as much as i could do and i didn't think i was ever going to go any higher and in 2014, I, I did the commentary at Darwin for, I think, six or seven years straight before uh, the opportunity came along with supercars. But I got to the end of 2014 race and went, you know, this, this is what's going to be. I'll come and enjoy it every year. But I think my days in the industry, um, I need to go and find a real job. But if you, if, you reverse it, if you reverse it a little further than that, mm. um, you're actually on pit crews and so on, like you would. Yeah. And what have you. So, so back in the early... Oh, mid-90s now, When going back to when Dad drove for Toll, they had a race team in the Porsche Cup days. In the last Grand Prix, I got tied up with that team. It was run by Rod Smith, who had just come away from Gibson's. I uh, ran Scafie's Formula Brabham, Formula Holden, that Lola, that awesome Lola they had for a few seasons. And he was just starting his own race team at the time. And um, I got thrown the old bucket and sponge and a chamois, and they said, get to work on the cars. Cool, no worries. I'll, I'll do anything to work on a race team back in the day. And it was the last Adelaide Grand Prix. One of the guys on the team said to me, um, just make sure you clean the interior. I'm going, yep, no worries. Thinking, you know, you're 15 years old. <laughs> and three hours later, they've come out and they've gone, no, nah, we were just joking. And I'm in the back of this little Porsche 911, <laughs> stuck in between the roll cage and the door, wiping out all the dirt. had probably been sitting there for 20 years. And I said, no, no, it's all cool. The car's clean. Just needs to look good for the track. And anyway, fast forward on, they took me out on the road in 96. And then when they progressed into supercars and we sort of bounced between um, Roddy's team and the Toll team when <clears throat> Anthony Tratt went on to his own race team there. But I, I kind of worked out in my early days that I was never going to be a mechanic. I still don't know much about cars to this day. And I'm, I'm happy to put my hand up about that. Um, but an opportunity came along to commentate. And I thought, well, let's take, Let's take that. I can talk about the sport. And you've known me long enough that <laughs> you, can talk. you have a phone call. You don't really <laughs> get much of a chance to say anything. No. And um, it just all took off from there. So I came with a bit of background, but I mean, it was so out of date by the time I got to Supercars in 2015 on the main show that, you know, I've often thought about going back and actually spending some time in the workshops and yeah, just to get my head around it. Because what we did back then was is prehistoric now compared to what 
you see on pit lane. But I was very lucky. But it was a lot of hard work in those days, you know, because you're a gopher. Effectively, you weren't getting paid. You were getting, you know, maybe your costs looked after and it was really a, a beer and pizza diet. It wasn't anything glamorous. You know, you'd slept in the transporter at events. I remember staying at Winton one night. We slept in the transporter on the floor in swags and it was actually snowing outside the transporter door. <laughs> so that's what you did to, to get into the industry. And it's the same when you, you break into the media side of it, that you, you end up just doing a lot of stuff at the bottom just to prove yourself. And eventually, you know, it should work out. The harder you work, it, it should actually pay off. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And that, that cuts across whether you're looking at getting involved in the sport uh, from a mechanic's point of view, uh, from a, even a driver's point of view. It's about um, putting in the hard yards and impressing people enough that they're going to give you a go. And, like, you know, I've done exactly the same stuff from the mm. media point of view. I mean, you, you you get on, you be a gopher. One minute you're cooking the barbecue, you're, <laughs> you're doing all sorts, you're running around, you're running into town, getting the beers for the boys and um, and what have you. But, like, you, you're doing what you can in the initial stages to move yourself up um, and then seeing what happens after that. And, like, you know, if you show the work ethic, um, people will eventually be impressed and then you get yourself to the point where it goes to the next level and people start seeking you out. Yeah, and you've really got to, you've got to love the sport to like like any industry you be in, whether it's football or cricket or motorsport or whatever. You, you spend a lot of time in it. You, you give up, you sacrifice a lot to be there. And I think motor racing in particular is is one of those real selfish sports that you, you're so self absorbed in it. And if you don't put the hard work and time into it, well, you simply you're not going to fit in. Um, yep. And I think that's probably the best advice you can give that it's not an easy road. And anyone that gets into any kind of industry in the sport, uh, whether it be on a team, whether you're a driver, you're a pit crew, or you work in the media side, or you become a commentator, the ones that sort of get in straight away without having to do the training or anything don't tend to hang around too long because they don't have a respect for the journey to get there. And yeah. people that have taken the long steps to get there tend to sort of defend their territory, don't they? They go, well, <laughs> hang on, I've been doing this since I was 16, and yet you've got exactly. this upstart that walks in who's who's got a degree, but he's never had, he or she's never had the experience. So mm. it's, it's a tough one. Yeah, look, and I think that, um, yeah, you, you're dead right. Like, I mean, you walk into a media centre um, anywhere in Australia, anywhere around the world, really, like they're the same names, uh, which in some ways is unfortunate. Um, but, you know, it is, it is what it is, um, you know, and it's very rare that you do find, uh, some young person, particularly in this day and age, coming through the ranks that's willing to put the, the hard yards in. So I guess that's, you know, a couple of grey-haired, grizzly old blokes. Because um, <laughs> yeah, we used to laugh at those guys too, didn't we? Yeah. We used to go, hey, you know, like we wanted to get into the industry. And if I, I look at some of the tactics I used to use early in the day and we all thought we were better than what we were and in the beginning, you thought, well, I could do this. And then the reality is you couldn't have done what you do now 20 years ago because you were nowhere near ready for it on mm. the other side to that you've got uh people that have been in the industry for 35 40 years that aren't exactly just going to move across and let somebody in and that's fair enough that's just that's how it goes but i i'm with you i i really i don't want to deter people trying to get into the industry and particularly from the area i'm in in commentary and i've seen a lot of Young ones coming through, start to say, start to sound old now saying young ones, but <laughs> I've seen a lot of people come through and they all want to do the job. But, you know, you can show me all the certificates and all the degrees and diplomas, whatever you like. If you can't talk, then you're not really oh, much yeah. good in the industry. But, so, <laughs> but the, the, the point I'm making is that don't expect it to be a one-year apprenticeship. 
it's going to take time. And if you're already looking for the checkered flag at the other end saying, that's where I want to be, whether it's supercars or it's, it's IndyCar or it's Formula One, that it's not going to happen overnight. And I feel at the moment that we're seeing people come through and they don't get it in the first two years or three years because I think they feel entitled to it straight away that, hey, I've spent all these years in university. I should be doing this. And it just isn't like that. Yeah. And I mean, getting back to the work ethic, I mean, when you rock up to um, a supercars event, so for a few years there, aside from being the um, the colour commentator on the uh, support categories on the Fox Sports coverage, you were the at-track voice of the supercars and you and Chad Nalon, along with Benny Bish and a few others, were the mm. ones that were actually painting the, the picture to the fans on the ground. And it's not just about turning up and commentating on 24 V8s running around the track. I mean, I've seen the amount of stuff that you carry with you to a race event. Now, just talk us through some of that background. Like, for example, next weekend going to Winton, uh, what's the work involved for you running, running up to that event? It started already, like, probably early this week. And even though it's, it's three support categories, you know, when you have a big field, say, of XLs, which I'm sure, which is probably the big buzz category going in, in motorsport at the moment. You know, if you've got to learn 35, 40 drivers pretty quickly and you don't have the time to go down to the pits um, when you're doing such a big workload at the events. I mean, the initial year of supercars, we were doing the at-track commentary for supercars in the Super 2 series, and then you'd be doing two or three categories of broadcast. You never had a time to even go near the pits. And some of these, some of these drivers, in fact, today, I'm still learning now, like I've actually never met them in person but you try and keep in contact with them through social media, which has been the biggest, biggest thing to our, you know, our industry to help us out with. It can be bad, but it can be also very good, especially when you're sort of running, running late on doing stuff. But my, I think I spend probably 90% of the time doing research and it really grinds me sometimes when people say, oh, yeah, what do you do during the week? And, well, you sit in front of a computer and, you, and you're trying to invent fresh stuff. You're trying to find out new news or you know, making sure you're ahead of the game. And it, it's never ending. I guess you can work at your own speed. You don't have to sit there nine till five. You can sort of do a bit during the morning then come back that night and work on there. But it's an incredible amount of workload to do, especially when you're going from different categories at different events. If it was just, say, you're doing supercars and supercars only, then you live, eat, breathe that category. But when you go to um, some of these other rounds where we're bringing in the local categories, it's really hard to, you know, try and, get into their world because in the day they are day-to-day workers as well and they don't have time for some guy ringing them on a phone or hassling them on an email for some background information so the research and being prepared for an event is key to being successful here and, and it's it's just that yeah and like and what you say there i mean you take it to the nth degree i mean it doesn't matter whether you're uh, you walk into the Perth Motorplex, you might to a speedway event, you might walk into a drag racing event somewhere. Um, you know, you never know where you're going to hear this voice of Matt Nolte because you do adapt across all these different events. Yeah, and that was always the path from the beginning. It's like I started doing speedway back in 2002 in Adelaide and you could easily have just fallen into a one-trick pony situation where all you knew was Speedway. And then to try and break into another form of motorsport, you'd just be laughed at a town going, oh, he's a Speedway guy. He's a drag racing guy. And I think towards the latter part of the 2000s, I was known as a drag racing guy because I'd done so much more drag racing than anything else. Hmm. Um, but, you know, you try to break out into different areas. You can't be everywhere. I think that's the – what I do is probably, you know, <laughs> loads more than it needs to be. 
um, if you're going to be in the sport, follow what you want to call and and work towards that goal. I mean, I'm trying to spread across several different di- disciplines, but you know, I'm making a career out of it, and you know, I do a ride out of it now. So maybe not 12 months ago, but certainly yeah. this year it's bouncing back. But I mean, everyone's got a story to tell from last year. So it's um it's about applying yourself to it, and you know, ultimately you'll get there. It all sounds cliche-ish and and fridge magnet like that. You know, I've got a fridge magnet here. It says it took takes 10 years to become an overnight success. Mm, mm. And it's true. And, you know, you see a lot of people, whether it's in this industry or it's a, it's an actor or a singer, and you go, oh, who's this person? Where did they come from? They're nobody. Well, you know, they did all the hard work to get to that, the peak of their careers. Yeah, and, like, and what a lot of people understand, like there's a lot of um, a lot of guys that are amateurs in motorsport, uh, particularly at the like in the area that you're in from a commentary perspective, but this is purely how you put food on the table. So you're chasing the gig literally to make sure that you're eating week to week and paying the mortgage and so on. And if you ever need a reminder how tough the industry can be, go through last year again. And, oh, you know, we've, we've all got stories. Every, everyone struggled through that. But when your event, you're event reliant on making money, Mm. And, you know, when there was a, a period there last year where I didn't leave the house I'm currently in at the moment for nearly you know, four months, we didn't have any work. I'd gone from doing 80 to 90 flights a year and several trips to America to full stop bank, nothing happening, walking to a concrete wall. And, you know, your career was sort of dangling because nobody knew when this was going to sort of settle down. It's not settled by any stretch. You know, it's still, it's still hanging around. It will be for a long, long time. But it is, and you've got to you've got to take it into consideration. You have to still do what we call the one percenters. And I, I, I commentated a speedway sprint car show in a little town called Mora last year, which is about two hours north of Perth. And I spent most of the summertime over in Perth last year. And I had a guy go, "Geez, what are you doing up here? Why would you want to come up to this dust bowl?" And that was his exact words. <laughs> and when I tell you it's the actual promoter of the track, <laughs> you'll have a laugh. But he was like. What, you know, you do supercars, you do stuff in America, you do TCR now. Like, why would you want to come and do this? Because at the end of the day, you've still got to work. And I still believe, we call it flying hours, but you've still got to keep sharp. And working through summertime at the Motorplex or wherever it might be keeps you sharp going into the new season because it's very easy to pull the handbrake on, you know, December 6, December 7, which is traditionally, you know, the last week of the year for motorsport. Then nobody does anything until mid-February, late February. And you actually do find yourself uh, rusty, I guess the word. Um, and you sort of, you get a bit slack. You take your foot off the pedal. So I, 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 and I seriously still enjoy doing Speedway and Sprint Cars. So why would you not do it? You get paid to call racing cars for a living. It's, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool yeah. way to do it. So there's certain uh, aspects that you've got to apply to doing a circuit race, meeting live to the crowd versus doing um, an event to TV. And then there's a certain way that you do speedway versus mm. what you would do towards supercars. And it does, it, there are certain ways that you have to do that. What are some of the difficulties in adapting between those disciplines? Uh, it's been made trickier with this new craze of using TV commentary as a track commentary. And I'm saying this purely as a personal opinion that I think it sucks. And I think you're doing a big disservice to the race fan that goes there. And I've sometimes sat there going, oh man, this is really, really embarrassing that we're doing this. I understand why they're doing it. It is a cost cutting you know, mission to do it, but you are really slapping the face of the punter that's sitting up there in the grandstand on a freezing cold day at Sydney Motorsport Park or 
getting torched in the sun at Hidden Valley is, you know, we still need that track connection. And you remember that race in Adelaide in 2016 where the thunderstorm hit. Oh, it's going to bring that and, up. How cool and, that? Yeah. And all we did, Chad and I and Cam Vanadung and the guys that did the event that weekend, we've all been on the other side of the fence. We've all mm. sat up on the hill getting drenched. We've all <laughs> know what it's like to be like out there in the elements. And when you take that away and it's just the TV side calling to you, well, you can't actually engage to the crowd when you're talking to TV because you're talking to people across Australia and New Zealand and across the world. You can't just suddenly encourage the crowd to get noisy when you're talking to someone that could be in a pub in Mount Isa, for example. Yeah, for those for those who don't know what we're talking about, uh, it's a massive thunderstorm hit at the start of the 2016 <laughs> Adelaide 500. They like it was black. It was pitch black around the circuit. They had to red flag the event. No one knew what was going on. So these lunatics just went crazy. And um, what the 30 or 40 thousand people in the front row grandstand were just going absolutely mental, and we're just paying for the cars to get back out. I've never been to a supercars event with so much atmosphere, and um, another one that springs to mind is um is bathurst a few years ago um getting the crowd really revved up i can't remember which year that was it might have been 15 but you know the crowd was just absolutely on edge um ahead of the race and there's f18s there's virgin planes flying (laughs) over um it was just mental standing on the grid that particular day yeah it's all about the at track experience isn't it i mean we would be hypercritical i guess of people when we'd been standing up on the hill there and, and it's so easy to criticize um someone that's in that role when you're watching as a punter and i'm sure you know there's people out there that don't like some of the stuff we've done over the years but you've got to make it entertaining and oh. people people want to escape their everyday lives to come out and be entertained on a race weekend so it's finding that balance of you know entertainment and not becoming too much of a school lesson where you're boring people in the grandstands so but you don't also dumb it down to nothing do you no, that's right. And that's the beauty of sport is that you've got to balance it perfectly in between, particularly when you're communicating on behalf of the sport, um, you've got to balance it between information and entertainment. Um, and that's something also for those that are coming uh, through various levels for the sport. Your business is not motorsport. Your business is entertainment. Like from when I first got involved, um, the first person I worked for in motorsport said to me, if ever you tell me that you work in motorsport, you're sacked on the spot. You're in the entertainment industry, and that mm-hmm. goes for that mechanic over there. It goes for the tire guy over there. It goes for the chef. It goes for everyone involved in this sport. You're, you're in the entertainment industry, and that's what drivers need to take into account. Um, you know, from the very uh, from the very early stages uh, of their uh, professional racing lives, and I think that's what um, I was listening to Marshall Pruitt on uh, with Richard Crow last night on the On the Grid podcast and um, Marshall made a point about Scott McLaughlin um, how he's effortlessly moving into the uh, IndyCar fan base because he is just a dude like you know he's got Scotty Learns America his hashtag that he's been running around with all that fun stuff that he's doing Mm. Um, but he's actually relatable Um, and you know fans will gravitate towards that, particularly the IndyCar fans. Um, They'll definitely gravitate to someone that they can relate to. And I think that that what you say about the entertainment side of things is something that you always need to keep in the back of your mind, regardless of what level of the sport you're involved. I think when Tony Cochran got hold of supercars years ago, that was the biggest kick in the pants, you know, Australian motorsport needed because 
I don't think the sport would be it'd be around, but it certainly wouldn't have the notoriety that it did. It certainly wouldn't have had the the high end that it did back in the late nineties and all the way through the two thousands. Because if you look back at the days when we were younger growing up, that a lot of these were just race meetings. And I hate hearing the word yeah. meetings, it's so sixties like that you'd go out to for me for Malala out here and um yeah, you know it was a, no longer with yeah. for me or Oran Park. Exactly. It was a great day out. But you'd never go back to it because really it was for the purest. And when they suddenly made it into a race and rock theme, which was big for years and years, you know, I remember the first Adelaide 500 and they had 50-odd thousand there on the Friday. No one expected a crowd like that. But you had concerts going on all day. You had entertainment going on between the races. Um, for it to go back to that would be really, really sad now, but it'd be very, very tricky. The, the, the entertainment dollar is so so hard to get now because there's so many options out there and people just don't like leaving home i know it's like these days there's so much you know opportunity to to watch stuff at home live stream or on tv there's so much sport around there but you really need to work a lot harder to get people through the gates and maybe maybe motorsport needs to apply to you know a t20 format you know and that's why i think night racing is such a it has to be their future it has to be taken into consideration that all right we're in the middle of winter up against AFL, NRL and the like. And no one has the eight or nine hours a day to be at a racetrack. And I saw mm. that sort of changing towards the days of Adelaide where you wouldn't have the peak crowd at 8.30 in the morning. It suddenly was getting later and later and later. And then they'd all pile in for the 78-lap race at 2.30 and they'd all be gone at 5 o'clock. But the purists would still be there. So you can't engage people to stay at an event for nine or 10 hours a day and certainly not for three days in a row now. Yeah, that's it. Speaking of entertainment, move on to um, a more recent uh, area of your career, stadium super trucks. Absolutely. (laughs) From the time it arrived in Australia. um, And most bizarre thing was the American version of you turned up with the series (laughs) commentator. It's scary enough with one of me in the world. And then uh, you're talking of Sean Sermony, who was the voice of stadium trucks since the beginning in 2013 and came from a great Supercross background and and, uh, Monster Jam promotion when I first met him. Now, to bring you up to speed how that all happened in 2015, I was part of the Supercars coverage, but was only ever meant to do the big screen for the events. And then when they went to Fox Sports, it was going to be all-day coverage at every event simply from the time the safety car went out or the course car went out on Friday morning to late Sunday afternoon. It was an incredible idea that they were trying to do, but they needed obviously extra voices to, to cater for that. And then a week out from the event, um, Simon Fordham, who was the, um, my producer at the time, he rang and said, uh, with your speedway background, we want you to call these stadium super trucks that are coming to Adelaide. And I said, what the hell's a stadium super truck? <laughs> of course, YouTube. Oh my God. This is absolutely awesome. This is so me. This is cool. Uh, guess what? You're doing it on your own. We'll find someone to call with you. And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm looking at. And then it suddenly <laughs> became apparent they were going to bring someone with them. And then there was a guy called Sean coming. I'm like, okay, no worries. And he'd been told that I'd done years and years of TV, which I hadn't. It was my first actual live <laughs> TV. That, well, I've done a lot of post TV before, that, but never live. And anyway, in walks this guy from Great Barrington, Massachusetts on on the Thursday morning. And I remember our guys behind the scenes wanted to actually put us to line, the actual commentary box camera to line, because you couldn't tell who was who. (laughs) And we instantly connected, even though I called him Sam in the first 
session, <laughs> not Sean, um, which Chad Nalon brought me up to speed during. But then in the afternoon, we just clicked. And from that point, it was uh, it's very hard in this industry, Maddie, to to find someone to work with that you don't clash because it's so ego driven. Like Chad Nalon and I have called together since 2007. And I think it was only a year or two ago that we actually overlapped each other in a, in a commentary session for the first time ever. We've got this great rapport with each other that we know how to work with each other. It's so hard to find because there is nothing worse than having two egos headbutting all the time. And I've seen it from behind the scenes going, man, I didn't think it was that bad. I've been very fortunate to work with some very good people over the years and I've never had a drama, but to find someone you really click with and you never have an issue it makes it so much better. And, and Serm was one of those guys. He just fit stadium super trucks to a T. And I mean, that video at the end of 2015 with Sheldon Creed rolling over, it's one of the highest viewed oh, wow. videos in the world. And it's still continuing. It's in the millions of views now, well into the 30, 40 million views now. So from that point onwards, uh, that's when my career sort of really started to take off. I was so excited just to be on the supercars gig and, and going to all the Australian rounds. And then Robbie Gordon came to me at the 2015 Adelaide race on the Sunday night and just said, I want to take you to America for some race. And I just laughed going, yeah, why would you take an Aussie guy to America for? And he goes, cause you're good. And you and you and Sean sound good together. Okay. No worries. And nothing come of it. Later in the year, they raced. You would remember that race. We had a Parramatta. At yep. the Speedway, sadly, Parramatta's well. now shut. Yeah. yeah, and that was meant to be at the showgrounds. Yes, yeah. So they moved that to Parramatta and tied it in with a sprint car event, which I thought was mega. The problem was it rained, typical Sydney. It rained in the wrong time of the year and really, really uh, put a damper on the event. But that's really, that weekend was the start. I ended up going to America two weeks later and I just got off the plane from New Zealand and <laughs> and... I get a phone call at like 5 a.m. And I was like, who's this? It's an American number. And I answered it. And I thought, nah, I'm dreaming this. And Sean was like, mate, I need to get to you, get you to the United States. And I said, yeah, hang on a minute. I'll wake up. Yeah. And I said, yeah, when do you want to do it? He goes, Thursday. And this was Tuesday. So I was like, okay, yep, no worries. So I've got up and sent some flights through and then realized I didn't have the right visa to get across there. And we had to ring the U.S. consulate and get it all sorted out before I flew off and literally the next day I was on a plane going back to Los Angeles uh, when I was supposed to be moving back to Perth that day of going the opposite oh. way and going to Los Angeles. And we had no deal in place. It was just a case of you're going into a studio, um, ironically, in Studio City, California, which is on the edge of uh, Beverly Hills. It's an old but very historical studio. A lot of big names have, have recorded there over the years and in roles asked to call Stadium Super Trucks and to just get the chance to go and do it over there was was cool, and then it just that, took off from that point. That led to like quite a number of trips, which sometimes are only two days, literally. Like I think it was forty hours. I think was a regular yeah. thing from the time you landed to the time you're back on a plane, and um, then that led to an introduction to um, uh, to IMS Productions, which of course is based at the IndyCar head office across the road from the Speedway. So you're quite a regular visitor across the road from um, <laughs> most unbelievable sporting facility in the world. I know. And still to this day, like it's the current tally was 27 trips hmm. that I did between 2016 and 2019. The last trip was to Portland in 2019. I went to the track up there in Oregon. Um, but we were doing eight, nine trips a year. And some of those trips, I remember the first year in 2016, I went, I did a, an off-road event in Mildura, flew to Los Angeles, then to Indianapolis, 
um, the next week. I literally got back from that trip. We had Phillip Island V8s that weekend, went home to Perth, and I was going back to America the next week again. And it was some of those trips. And, and what you said just before, 40 hours, exactly was 40 hours in Indianapolis. So I was living in Perth at the time, and it was 26 hours door to door. So time I'd leave Perth on a Monday morning, it was 5 a.m. to Sydney, Sydney to Dallas-Fort Worth, which is up until recently the longest flight in the world, and then to Indianapolis. So you'd leave at 5 in the morning and get there 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Indy time, have a feed, do the call the next day, have the night there, and then you'd be back on a plane at 4 o'clock Wednesday afternoon, then back into Perth Friday at 11.30, 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And I can say it on the podcast, I'd go out Friday night and have a big night out because yeah. you're so pumped up with adrenaline well, that you just, you just had to make the most of it. The point, point I was going to make there is like, you make it sound so tough, but you still did manage to get to Dick's Last Resort in Indianapolis <laughs> every time you were there. If you don't, Dick's Last Resort's a great bar, great series of bars in America where uh, the staff's actual mission is to abuse you and it's, uh, it's absolutely hilarious. But do you still hold ambition to go back to America? I know that you had a strong ambition to do that then um obviously last year hit um and has curtailed things a little bit yeah 2017 i uh, had a really in-depth meeting at ims productions in the states now ims productions indianapolis motor speedway productions they are the indycar uh, tv production companies similar to supercars media in australia and i didn't realize how big they were when we first went there so they're if you've been to America, but if you haven't, there's a place called the Brickyard Plaza, which is behind Turn 2. And in the day, it was like a shopping centre you would have seen in the, in, the, in the suburbs, I guess, in Australia. But it was for Indianapolis and for Speedway because the track is in Speedway, Indiana. Well, their studio and offices for IndyCar are in that building. And I remember going there the first time and I walked through this, this room to cut across to the lunchroom. And there's just cassettes and discs from every IndyCar race dating back to the 80s, all master files. I'm going, this is the actual home of the broadcast. And there was some talk in 2017, and it was almost across the line to go across and have a, a big shake. A guy that you and I both know very well, Paul Ryan, he, he yep. really pushed hard. We had a, a dinner and drinks at um, Detroit that year uh, to the GM line. Renaissance. Qualified. Yeah, and he was... But he's obviously he's another great Australian export that's been over there for a long time now. And like he put it in my head that you know you could be here and making a full time career. You, you've got to understand, Maddie, you get it. And for people listening, that to do it here in Australia, we are a hobby farm. And I mean that in the, mm. in the nicest possible way to make it at the level here where you're in that top one, two percent in the country that can make a living out of it. That's pretty cool. But you go to America, it is just a totally different beast. And there is so much motorsport there. And I guess with having a, a speedway background, a drag racing background as well, that, you know, I was lucky to do the USAC sprint car series over there for a week. And there was just a chance, another chance meeting. It was a case of being at the right place at the right time. I was in Detroit the year, the weekend that Matt Mingay had his big crash. And we're all sort of a bit down about it in the, the hotel that night. And, Obviously, Maddie's made a great recovery now, and I met uh, the guys from USAC that obviously governed the series for stadium trucks, and the phone was placed in my ear, and it was a guy called Levi Jones, who was a legend of the USAC series for years and years. Uh, look, they were looking for a commentator to go on the road to do Pennsylvania or PA Speed Week, as they call it, and they were leaving Monday, hmm. and I probably had a few too many blue moons under my belt just going, uh -huh. yeah, 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 I'll, I'll go on the road, <laughs> this will be cool. 
And then I thought about the next day going, I'm going on the road with people. I have no idea who they are um, in a series that, you know, I've watched a bit on online, but never really focused too hard on it. All of a sudden I'm in their command truck going from Indianapolis out to Pennsylvania with a guy that I'd met literally that morning and went on the road and did five or six events there. And I still stay in regular contact with those guys. And there was another opportunity um, that may come back at some point that, you know, if you're, if you're over there in the States, um, those opportunities will present themselves because that series alone runs a hundred odd nights a year, much like the world of outlaws does. So, and like with, um, and with that, of course, another couple of stories to pop off the back of that. You spent some time uh, in the truck with Brian Clawson while you were over there. Mm. Of course, the late great Brian Clawson, very, very sad to lose him in the way that we did uh, some years ago. And to your point again about coming through the ranks, um, I urge anyone to go and jump onto Greg Rust's Rusty's Garage and listen to Lee Diffie's uh, mm-hmm. podcast and his story coming from, um, you know, running around commentating dirt track motorcycles for free uh, to now being the lead caller for uh, for NBC. Actually, this morning I listened to um, a podcast he did with Marshall Pruitt where he spoke about that again. And you think that, you know, he's a guy from Brisbane who's just gone on. Yeah. Be, he's going to call the 100 metres at the Tokyo Olympics, for God's sake. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's remarkable that, um, but that, that again comes back to what we speak of um, with regards to doing the hard yards early um, mm-hmm. and then, and then moving forward yeah and you know he's one of the greatest i mean he's probably uh the person you aim to be and it's, it's still very funny there's been some comparisons over the years i don't get it i don't think i sound anything like lee diffie but i guess when you're in america a different voice always is going to sound the same when there's an australian voice there we they call it an international voice they don't even call it an australian accent they just go it's great to have an international voice here yes. so obviously <laughs> what he's done over from. there no, that's right. <laughs> but I think he um, might have had a crack at you on Marshall's podcast, to be honest, this morning. <laughs> oh, seriously? I'm not surprised. Because every time I've read, I've gone, oh, man, because I've never, I've never met Lee, and I'd love to one day, but it's just like it's, I've never gone out to imitate him. I mean, mm. it's Yeah, just, no, you've always been, been your own person. Yeah, and how it's like, worked out. But To wrap up, we're coming up to nearly an hour. Um, currently, you're the voice of... Um, Quite a number of categories, principally the Channel Seven or Seven Network coverage of um, of TCR with Greg Rust, one of the all time greats, um, and a few other <laughs> categories in that area. Um, and you know, again, some more support categories um, back on the Supercars calendar as well. Yeah, TCR was. Uh, I got a chance in 2019 to call a couple of races there, and it led into. 2020 when they were going to move to the seven network and again you know it's still growing that and the fact that i never got to celebrate my 40th last year some of the big disappointments of 2020 that we had such a mega year lined up and we had several calendar changes to tcr and we were going to start in august and then in the end we started at tasmania this year and, and that's a series that's really gaining momentum they're great cars if you'd said to me five years ago would i be calling a twin turbo two liter touring car category i probably would have laughed at you but um, I find the series very, very cool. It's a mixture of, of youth, um, experienced drivers and, you know, the weekend races that can run on the big stage and um, that along with S5000, which I, I really believe is going to be our open wheel future because we've had so many cracks at it now and, like, we weren't around in the glory days of F5000, but we saw them at the revivals they used to have at the Grand Prix and at some rounds I called some in New Zealand a few years ago and I thought to see Kenny Smith and actually call Ken Smith in a race, you know, he's been around for 50-plus years, Yeah, was very cool. But what we're seeing now with S5000 and the work that Chris Lambden's done and 
GR Ram and the like, we're getting some big names. I'd love to see, you know, when the borders relax and we get to have internationals in again, could you imagine seeing some of the IndyCar names? Imagine if Will Power could come back out here or, or Scott Dixon. I'd love to see SVG behind the wheel of one down the track. So the opportunities for that series is endless. And we haven't even thought about what the Trans-Tasman would be like again, yeah. having races, having Caleb Natoa race in the series this year who never saw a racetrack in Australia, rolls into Phillip Island on the wettest day possible and was instantly competitive. So that, yeah. that category alone has got massive potential. And the same with Trans-Ams. They just get bigger and bigger. So very lucky to be in with that series um, and being back at Supercars on a support basis again is very, very cool because as you probably remember at the start of the year, I was not going back. And that was purely on the fact we didn't have enough support categories to to commentate at. It wasn't a case I'd done anything wrong. It was just that's how it was going to be. But thankfully, that's that's turned around. And with Stadium Super Trucks starting to fire up again in Australia, we've got pretty much the rest of the season now um, back on that coverage too. So every day, Matty, very, very privileged, very um, lucky to be involved. There's a lot of – I won't say it's luck. You create your own luck. Uh, I don't believe I've, in luck. Luck doesn't no, exist. no, you create it. You, yeah. The harder you work, the better it'll get. Again, it goes back to what I said. It's all cliche stuff, and but I've always been a believer. The harder you work, it should it should pay off in the end. And mm-hmm. I I love telling the story now to people because I want to give people encouragement as well. Because at the end of the day, Matty, as you know, I'm a forklift driver by trade. Yes. I've worked in warehouses most of my life, and I've gone out and done something that I've wanted to do. And it, I hope it gives you know some encouragement to people that. Look, you know, you can do it, um, but be prepared to put in the hard yards because it's not an easy road. And if you think it's going to be easy, then, you know, it's probably not for you. Yeah, no, 100%. Just to wrap it up, um, mm. you've worked with some of the all-time greats, um, but what, whatever level from Speedway, who right through to Formula One level, who have been some of the great inspirations and, um, and so on that you've worked with and been able to draw a lot from? Um, you and I know the guy very well, a guy called Dean Neal back in WA. Yep. He was great in my early days. Dino was um, obviously a voice at Parramatta Speedway for a long time, did the Andrea Pro Series when 1HD first started. A great life coach and a great mentor to my career. Um, he's probably not heard of a lot at the bigger end, but like from our point of view, we know how good he is. He's one of the most meticulous, thorough guys, but a very fair guy. I've, I've never met a guy who's who puts up with... <laughs> A lot of my nonsense, <laughs> as, as you've done over the years. But um, certainly he's had a lot to do with my career. A guy called Jimmy Schoen, early in the days, he was the voice of World Series Sprint Cars back in the initial days. He was very tough on me um, in the beginning, which I needed because he, he said, the one thing I don't want you to become is another ego. And he'd yeah. let you get you know, a fair way. Then he just yanked the collar. And you'd, you'd, I remember one night he almost put me to tears in the commentary box at Adelaide. And I, I needed that because I went in thinking I was going to be awesome and I just couldn't get my words right. I couldn't string a sentence together. Sometimes I still have that now, but he was very good to me, but he was just, he was also at the same time. He, he taught me a lot about, about life in the initial years. Um, and I still talk to Jimmy as much as I can. He's in Melbourne. I should actually get in contact a bit more, but what to a share a commentary box. in the game. I know. And <laughs> a guy that still sounds young I and mean, Jimmy, I think early, Oh, he'll kill me if I say it. Maybe early 70s. Mm, mm. But he was the big booming voice of sprint cars, you know, much like a Daryl Eastlake was back in the days. And he was good. Uh, I've worked with Wade Ollinger. Wade was, you know, 
great in the early days of my career. We've, we've probably only done half a dozen shows in the last 10 years. We called a sprint car show together at Murray Bridge last year, and it just works. Yeah. When you work with you know guys that are really, really good at their game, it just makes the night so much more easier and effortless to do. Um, but to share the commentary box now with some of the guys that I grew up watching, that to sit in the commentary box you know, next to Neil Cronton and Mark Scaife and Greg Rust, you know, Rusty is another guy that, you know, he's, he's a total professional but can be on our level as well. He wants to have fun and he's very, very much about bringing the next generation through. And I'm very, very you know, fortunate to get as much time as I can with him. But to, to share a box with him, wow, it's pretty cool. And, you know, any of these guys that have done it for a long, long time, you know, you, you've got to respect them. And each time I still go into a commentary box and go, wow, you get to do this. And it's so cool. Yeah, that's great, mate. Mate, uh, thank you so much for your time. It's great to catch up. I hope that everyone who's listening to this has actually got uh, something out of it, had a bit of fun along the way, but certainly got um, some advice from bloke who's been through it. As he said, he's a forklift, tri- forklift <laughs> driver by trade, um, and he's done all right at the other end uh, throughout the motorsport game. But I think, you know, the overall message is that you've just got to keep working hard, put in the hard yards, and be prepared to do the things that you don't really necessarily want to do if you want to get through yeah i think you've summed it up perfectly and take the opportunities when they come along and enjoy the ride that was something that i didn't do for probably the first five or ten years i'm now probably my 20th 21st year of it i was not enjoying the ride there for a while it was a case i was just trying to climb the ladder so quickly and i look back now at some of the stuff i've done there was a video put up the other night of victor bray doing his first five second pass at the motorplex eight or nine years ago, and it was a blur that, you know, looking back in time now, but I've got such a greater appreciation for those early parts of the career that, you know, we, we just, we were doing commentary three, four nights a week. And before I can, if I can just say this too, Matty, before I go, <laughs> the Perth Motorplex was very much uh, the springboard for my career. And, you know, when I left there, Adelaide in 2008, it was on an absolute wing and a prayer. I didn't yeah. even get a chance to say goodbye to anyone. I just literally packed my gear, got in the car. We had a handshake agreement to go across there. Kevin Prendergast, Ray Treasure, Gavin Migro, those guys who all made it happen. And when I got there, I was punching out three to four nights a week um, for six or seven months at a time. And that really escalated into what it is now. And I, I really, really do advise anyone that sort of, if you're in Sydney, head out to Sydney Dragway and, you know, cut your teeth out there or same in Queensland. And if you're in WA listening to this, that is where you're going to learn. That is the grassroots level. That is where you get into it and you start to get better at your craft. No, that's it. Great advice. Thanks again, Matty, for joining us on the Motorsport Coaching Podcast, powered by Motivate Training. Nolters live an interesting motorsport pathway. What he talks about doesn't just apply to getting involved in commentary of the media. His lessons on resilience, tenacity and being adaptable apply to all levels of the motorsport spectrum. We hope you also got a laugh along the way. Thanks for tuning into the Motorsport Coaching Podcast, powered by Motivate Training. Don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating and share with your friends. Until we join you next, I'm Matt Payne. We'll see you then. 
thanks everyone for listening to this week's show. I really hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. Now remember all the show notes with the links and the specials mentioned in today's show are available over at motivatetraining.com.au. If you haven't already, I'd really appreciate if you could head to iTunes or Stitcher, type in Motorsport Coaching, subscribe and leave us a review. Each week, I'll read them out and you'll go into monthly draw to win a fantastic prize. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at motivatetraining.com.au or head over to our Facebook page at Motivate to Tea. Until next time, take care.